Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. The first episode, Facial Recognition Technology and its Algorithmic Racial Bias, is from a webinar on the growing use of video and AI technology in policing and the justice system and how these technologies can perpetuate bias. The law and technology experts participating in the panel discussion are Angel Diaz, Council on Liberty and National Security at the Brennan Center for Justice. Elizabeth Joe, Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the UC Davis School of Law. Deborah Raji, Technology Fellow at Mozilla. James Spivak, Policy Associate at the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law. The hour-long program is moderated by Francis Shen, Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota Law School and Executive Director of Education and Outreach for the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. This webinar was originally recorded on September 18th, 2020. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Welcome, everyone. This is today's webinar on the topic of facial recognition technology and its algorithmic racial bias. My name is Francis Shen. I'm a law professor here at the University of Minnesota Law School, where I teach and write about law, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. And it's my great pleasure today to moderate our session with four amazing panelists. Before we dig in, let me note three things. First, this is the third in a special University of Minnesota Law School series exploring bias and the criminal justice system. We want to thank the University of Minnesota Law School for its sponsorship and also thank the Minnesota Journal of Law, Science, and Technology for co-sponsorship. Second, to let you know, today's session is being recorded and will be available after the event is over. So if you like what you see, you can share it when you get an email follow-up next week to all registrants. In that email, you'll also get more information if you need it about CLE credit for this event. And third, and most importantly, you can participate in today's session through the Zoom Q&A feature. The chat function is disabled, but the Q&A feature is up and running. So if you look down at the bottom of your Zoom toolbar, you'll see a little Q&A button. You click it, you type in your question, and at the end of the hour, we've reserved time for your questions. I'll curate those. We'll get to as many as we can. I'm sure you're going to have a lot of them. So with those preliminary items out of the way, let's get to the main event. Today's topic really, I think you'll agree, couldn't be more timely. Rapid advances in AI and facial recognition, coupled with increasing concern about government surveillance, and especially the use of police force, make for a perfect storm. And swirling around in that storm are foundational questions about the intersection of science, technology, justice, and democracy. And our panel today will dive into those questions. It's my pleasure to introduce them now. I'll introduce them all now, and then they'll speak uh, in sequence each for about eight minutes, after which we'll take your questions. We will first hear from law professor Elizabeth Joe, the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at UC Davis School of Law. Dr. Joe holds a BA from Yale and both a JD and PhD from NYU and has published really in just the very best law reviews and is amongst the nation's leading thinkers on law, AI, and policing. She's authored really the first and some of the most foundational texts in this space. And she's going to help us see you know, the space. What are the big questions, the issues, the tensions that we ought to be thinking about? 
We'll then hear from Deborah Raji, a tech fellow at the AI Now Institute at NYU. Ms. Raji is a graduate of the engineering science program at the University of Toronto with a background in robotics engineering. She's worked in machine learning engineering at Clarify, which is a leading computer vision startup, and really has been a leader in bridging that technology and engineering world with the world of ethics and social responsibility. She's been very active in the Algorithmic Justice League, and her work has featured uh, prominently uh, in New York Times coverage, Washington Post coverage, has been involved in Google AI's flagship uh, mentorship startup, um, and also a fellowship in partnership on AI. She's going to speak to us and help us learn more about, well, how does this bias emerge in these AI-reliant facial recognition systems, and what solutions, technical or otherwise, might be available to address these challenges. Our third presenter will be Jameson Spivak, a policy associate with the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law. Mr. Spivak conducts research on law enforcement's use of face recognition and other AI-assisted technologies. He graduated from the University of Maryland and worked in the communications industry and now also has a master's degree at Georgetown's uh, Communication, Culture, and Technology program. And he's produced with the Center some of the leading work on legislative responses. You know, how are policymakers responding? He's going to help us understand what the law looks like, what's being done, what's working, what's not, and what more needs to happen. And then we'll conclude, and this is fitting for a program at a law school, with attorney Angel Diaz, who is a consul in liberty and national security at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. Attorney Diaz works at the intersection of technology with civil rights and civil liberties. He's a graduate both of Berkeley Law and the University of California, Berkeley. And prior to joining the Brennan Center was an associate at Gunderson Detmer when he advised technology startups on issues related to privacy, information security, intellectual property. He's gonna talk to us today about the legal issues posed by police surveillance technology and possible legal remedies and policy avenues to address these concerns. So as you can tell, this is a really great group. Eight minutes is not enough for each of them, but they've been willing to, um, uh, to try. And I'd encourage you, if you get interested, to look at the event webpage. We've linked to their bios, to their research centers, to their publications for you to learn more. With that uh, all out of the way, let me um, have no further ado and invite Dr. Joe to give our first presentation. So thank you so much for um, inviting me to talk about this uh, important topic and to be among this panel of uh, distinguished uh, experts in this area. Um, so this is a panel about facial recognition technology, but I want to broaden our scope here today to help frame the rest of the discussion. So the issues I think that are present here are could be applied to many different kinds of technologies that the police are using today, whether we're talking about license plate readers, intelligence databases, prediction software, uh, all of these different kinds of things that seem to be very different, but actually share a common set of concerns. So I just wanna point out some big picture questions that I think can help us think about facial recognition technology in particular. So the first thing I wanna mention is that we are surrounded more and more by technologies that police rely increasingly upon to do some of their most basic tasks, investigation, surveillance, um, identifying suspects, but we failed to articulate some of the basic questions, objection, objectives rather, and the measures of success for how to use these things. So when it comes to all of these rapidly changing police technologies, our model is pretty similar from technology to technology. It's uh, adopt the technology, hope to regulate it later, uh, discover there are some serious harms or problems, 
but then eventually even fail to ever ask the question of why are we using these technologies and to what ends? What does success look like for us and for whom? Communities, the police, uh, lawmakers, and who gets to have input into those basic questions? I think that's a real challenge that we see across the board. <clears throat> Second of all, um, policing technology today is really a story about private interests and public power. So what I mean by that is many of the policing technologies that are used today, including facial recognition technology, and the ones that particularly impact civil liberties are developed primarily in the private sector, designed in the private sector, and either sold or leased to American law enforcement agencies. What does that mean? That means that police are customers in a consumer vendor relationship. So what that means is that some of the most important decisions, some of the most basic questions about technology like facial recognition technology don't actually begin with the police. Are you worried about bias data? Are you worried about the impact that pervasive surveillance from facial recognition technology would have on a community? It turns out that maybe the police aren't the first entities or the first people that you'd want to ask about. In fact, those very basic questions start out in the private sector as a kind of off-the-shelf product that the police uh, uh, end up using. And then finally, I think as we are moving uh, to a world where there is more and more of te technological use based on the oceans of data that we, the police have access to, the application of artificial intelligence, actually seeing as a move to what you might call facial recognition, facial recognition technology 2.0. So what I mean by that, for sure, we are looking at local bans in some places around the country, bans on uh, public agencies using facial recognition technology, or most recently, a place like Portland, where you even have a ban on private use. So that kind of energy, that kind of uh, legislative energy is still going on. But if you look at the broad picture of things, the history of how surveillance technologies are used, I think it's a mostly transitory phase, largely because what we're seeing is a world in which we're surrounded by facial recognition technology, not just the uses that the police have for them. So what do we mean when we say that we're going into this other phase of facial recognition technology? I think it changes the questions, right? We're starting to move beyond should we use it at all or should certain entities use it at all to more granular issues like what does harm reduction look like and what is harm when it comes to these kinds of things? What does bias minimization look like and who ought to have an input in, in, in defining that and measuring that? And then ultimately, I think a darker story too of what I call a kind of bastardization of the technology. So using something like facial recognition technology, but really using it as a baseline for applying other layers of very human, discretionary, and sometimes biased decision-making, but labeling it all with a kind of veneer of objectivity and science, which is a kind of misleading use of technology itself in a rhetorical sense, much more than in a literal sense. So you can see that these are very different kinds of questions. And I think um, you know what, I, what I'm hoping from this conversation today uh, with this wonderful panel is that we can start to address some of these, these big picture questions with facial recognition.
Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I think it didn't pick up. I was just saying to thank you to Dr. Joe for that tremendous presentation and for raising such difficult questions, which um, we're going to try and wrestle with on the panel. And we now turn it over to Deborah to help us understand the technology underlying those questions. So hi, uh, my name's Deb Raji. Uh, as I was mentioned, um, I actually very currently, like today, uh, transitioned from a role as a fellow at the AI Now Institute to a Mozilla fellow. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm in like a very, very new role, but um, a lot of this work is work I did with the Algorithmic Justice League and while working with other collaborators. Um, and I'm gonna try to go very quickly through um, some of the work that we do in this space called algorithmic auditing. So, um, you know, in algorithmic auditing, we, it, it kind of, it's a, it's a community of researchers that are sort of reacting to the fact that a lot of AI tools um, that we've developed through, you know, decades of research at this point are now finding their way into the real world. So there's a lot of widespread deployment of commercial AI systems. And as these things get deployed, uh, suddenly we need to pay more attention to um, the potential for bias and abuse. So the way I like to describe the distinction between, you know, the kind of algorithms we're auditing and looking at in the real world versus the image that people have in their heads of AI systems is the difference between, you know, Sophia the robot, which is sort of this humanoid, very complicated machine um, aligned with people's sort of sci-fi vision of what a robot is um, compared to the Roomba, which is in, you know, 14 million homes, uh, definitely one of the most impactful and prevalent um, uh, uh, sort of uh, commercial robots out there, um, but relatively simple in terms of its design, um, but by far much more impactful than a Sophia. So the Roomba, you know, although it looks much simpler, uh, actually has like the potential to do a lot more damage than the Roomba just because of the number of um, interactions that it has and the nature of those interactions. Um, so facial recognition is, you know, one of those Roombas. Um, uh, the technology, is, the current sort of method of uh, develop, the current popular approach of developing this technology since about 2014 has been machine learning, um, supervised machine learning, and um, sort of similar, sort of similarity search variations of that. And um, as a result of that, since then, we've seen facial recognition deployed very, very widely. So um, great report from Georgetown Law talking about um, police use of facial recognition affecting 64 million Americans, um, e some other sort of equally disturbing reports on, you know, Rite Aid, which is um, a drugstore in the U.S., um, sort of deploying facial recognition in 200 of its stores, uh, New York City uh, deploying facial recognition in its schools, uh, U.S. airports uh, deploying facial recognition, uh, you know, on uh, over 100 million passengers a week and about 16,000 flights. So it's a very widely used technology. Um, and the, the challenge here is that there's been a certain amount of pushback that's alerted us to people being uncomfortable with this wide deployment. So um, most notably, um, Uber uses facial recognition to have its drivers sort of validate their identity for its app. And they've faced two lawsuits, one from a black driver that claimed that it didn't work for him based off of his skin his skin type, and then another driver that claimed that it didn't work for them because of their transgender identity. So, um, and, you know, we have other cases of people suing based off of false facial recognition matches um, and others suing uh, for privacy reasons and tenants pushing back against landlords for similar reasons. So um, there's definitely a lot of controversy around this technology. So what algorithmic auditing is as an approach is a, it's a, it's a method of holding these AI systems accountable. It's meant to be a way to measure 
um, you know, the potential for disparate impact or different disparate performance of these systems or other types of failures, and then report back in a way that um, actually gets these corporations to shift their practice or to have them uh, or, or shift the policy conversation with respect to the regulation of the technology. So traditionally, we've had several challenges with respect to getting algorithmic auditing to be impactful. So we've had issues with benchmark bias, which I'll talk about more later, but the evaluations that we've been traditionally doing for machine learning and AI systems has been itself biased. So the tests that we use to validate these systems have themselves been biased. Um, we have issues with the access to target. So sometimes it's very difficult to identify uh, the system directly, and we always end up using proxies. Um, we have issues with a lack of public pressure. So traditionally with algorithmic audit studies, um, even if the results are very remarkable, sometimes it's difficult to get public engagement uh, and conversation going around the issue and actually results in any kind of corporate behavioral change. And then the last issue being this um, fear of cor hostile corporate reaction. So whenever we audit a system, there's always the concern that uh, the company will get upset at us um, and uh, or will get sued. Um, and uh, especially when algorithmic audits in the investigative journalist sort of a journalism space, um, this was a huge concern that would prevent people from actually doing the audit or releasing any um, significant results. So I'm going to talk about gender shades, which is uh, what we call an actionable audit. Um, it, we try to design a type of audit to address these concerns um, and actually result in an, uh, you know, uh, communicate results in a way that would get these companies to react to um, our findings. So this is sort of like the technical definition of what gender shades is, but uh, the TLDR here is that um, we are evaluating the facial analysis task of binary gender classification, and uh, we're doing it as external auditors, as independent third-party auditors. So, you know, to address the benchmark bias issue, we built our own benchmark. We looked at um, sort of this idea of an intersectional user representative test set where we say, well, we're worried about how this system performs according to skin type and gender. So we're going to build a benchmark that's balanced with respect to representation of these communities. And um, when you see our benchmark, which is highlighted in red here, it's PPB, uh, compared to all the other benchmarks that were being used in the facial recognition space at the time, you can see that we're one of the few that are sort of balanced with respect to skin type and gender, where you have other benchmarks that are skewing 77% male or up to 95% lighter skinned subjects. So just by virtue of creating our benchmark, um, our test set um, was uh, balanced in a way that other evaluations uh, lacked. Uh, the other thing we did, and I won't spend any time on this, but um, we also focused on auditing the model directly through this idea of an application program interface rather than looking at the end developer application. And what that did is it just allowed us to focus on the actual facial recognition uh, model rather than looking at anything else that could modify the results. Uh, another thing we did is that we named the different targets. So we named IBM, Microsoft, Face++ as targets. And what this did is that it created a competitive dynamic between targets. This is a common strategy in financial auditing as well, where um, you know, by having multiple targets that are explicitly identified, there's a competitive dynamic that kind of arises where once IBM responds, Microsoft feels pressure to respond. Uh, another kind of side effect of that was that the press was very interested in the story. Once we named the targets and there was multiple of them, um, it suddenly became newsworthy and we got a lot of public engagement as a result of that. 
Um, and then finally, to address the corporate hostile corporate reaction uh, concern, uh, I can't go too much into this, but we effectively followed a very similar disclosure process as the information security community. So in information security, if you find a software security bug, um, there's a very clear set of steps to go through. And uh, we follow a similar set of steps um, for disclosing the bias concerns that we identified. And what that did is it offered us legal protection um, and also uh, improved our relationship with the companies that we were auditing. So the big um, question here was, you know, after auditing these companies, uh, was our audit effective in terms of shifting corporate behavior uh, and understanding on evaluations, but, but also the performance of these systems on different demographic groups? So what we did is we audited these three companies, we audited the, them again a year later, and then we audited these two other companies, these non-targets uh, that hadn't initially been audited to just compare and understand how um, our audit was impactful or not impactful in terms of shaping corporate behavior. So the most important part of the study is sort of the performance on the different sort of intersectional subgroups. So darker male, darker female, lighter male and lighter female. Um, we can see between 20... 2017, the first audit, and the second audit in 2018, Microsoft um, mostly improves in terms of performance of their systems for this darker female subgroup. In 2017, the gap is quite large between the, the lighter male subgroup and the darker female subgroup. And a year later, a lot of the improvement that they've made is for that darker female subgroup. We see a very similar pattern with Face++. Um, and we see a very similar pattern with IBM as well. However, for the companies that we hadn't initially audited, that gap still persists. So you can see with Amazon, you know, who was pitching their facial recognition product to ICE and police departments at the time, and Kairos, um, you know, which at the time was sort of going through an internal controversy around their contracts with DOD and other military applications for facial recognition, like those products which were deployed, which were being sold at this time, at the time that we were doing the study, still had a significant gap between performance on darker females and lighter males. So the key sort of takeaway here is that um, if the system doesn't work for everyone, um, it doesn't actually work. Um, you know, there was a long, in the sort of academic community and conversation around fairness and uh, performance for a long time, um, there was this debate between, oh, accuracy and fairness trade-off. You have to sort of compromise accuracy in order to build a system that's fair. Um, however, what we find practically, you know, with deployed products is that there, there usually isn't a trade-off. If I look up beautiful skin and all I see are lighter skinned women, you know, that's not accurate. Like men can have nice skin too. Uh, you know, darker skinned people can have like nice skin. Um, it, it's actually, um, in, inaccurate for the system to not operate properly for a particular group or not represent a particular group. Um, and this became super clear with the National Institute of Standards and Technology, where, you know, for the first time last year, they finally did an audit as part of their um, assessment of a bunch of facial recognition vendors for the government. Um, they finally evaluated performance according to different demographic categories. And what they found was that um, Asian and African-American people were up to 100 times more likely to be misidentified than white men, which is an alarming result. 
at the same time, um, as our audit work was sort of gaining a bit of visibility, there were also a bunch of really great studies, um, pilot studies done where people would take a facial recognition product and try to test it in the real world or in a real world context. Um, and again, as you can see with this MTA uh, facial recognition audit, where 0% of the faces were correctly identified from the pilot, um, and then a case in the UK's police use of facial recognition where um, 81% of the time there was a false match. Um, and, you know, the reason why this matters and the reason why this is really impactful when, you know, we identify the fact that this is a technology that isn't necessarily practical or functional at this point is that um, when it fails, it results in uh, a lot of injustice. So this is the case of Robert Williams, a man in Detroit that was wrongfully identified by a facial recognition system. And as a result, arrested and had to deal with the entire, you know, fighting the criminal justice system as a black man in the U.S. Um, so the the consequences of the dysfunctionality or the the the, the, the issues of, of this technology in deployment um, is is impossible to ignore. Um, oh, yeah, and and something that we saw um, after you know very recently, especially in the wake of the recent sort of um, racial racial justice protests in the U.S. was that um, these companies actually started backing away from selling facial recognition. So in the case of IBM, they completely removed themselves from that industry. In the case of Amazon, they put a pause on police sale of facial recognition for about a year. Um, and these are different degrees of the community and the public realizing that because this technology is so um, dysfunctional, it shouldn't even be on the market. While the policy conversation is happening, um, it's actually completely not appropriate to deploy this technology at its current state. Um, and you know, most importantly, outside of any kind of corporate action that can happen, um, I'm very excited to see a lot of the policy conversations evolving. Um, lots of bans, municipal bans um, of facial recognition use, and um, more interestingly, local and state laws and a, a couple federal bills um, around the regulation of this technology. And Thank you. Great. Thank you, Deborah. Um, wonderful presentation. Um, so if you can stop your screen share and we'll turn it over to Jameson to share your screen. And it's a wonderful transition because Jameson is going to tell us how are states and localities handling this. Jameson, all yours. Thanks for having me. Um, it's really an honor to be on such an awesome panel. Um, so over the past year, we've seen a surge in proposed and inactive enacted legislation regulating use of face recognition. Uh, as more people are learning about the potential harms of the technology, uh, especially in the context of law enforcement. Um, a lot of this movement has come at the state and local level as grassroots activists push for the protections in the absence of federal legislation. Uh, so generally we've seen three major types of face recognition legislation introduced and I'll go through each of them. Uh, this includes a complete ban, um, which prohibits the technology's use uh, a moratorium, which presses pause on the use of the technology, and there's two different types um, that I'll go through later. And then more generally, uh, regulatory bills, which allow use of the technology with specific requirements or limitations. Legislation can address either private actor use or government use, but most address the latter, um, with law enforcement being a particular area of concern. Um, I'm going to talk less about specific bills or laws and more about the trends that we've seen in terms of what's being introduced. Um, I also want to emphasize that the existence of 
specific face recognition legislation doesn't preclude the possibility of legislation that addresses wider issues of police technology, biometric surveillance, or other relevant tools um, like Professor Joe raised earlier. So first, bans are the strongest legislative response. They prohibit the use, access, or acquisition of face recognition technology. And to date, only municipal governments have passed full bans, mostly concentrated in cities in California and Massachusetts. These bans have focused on government and specifically law enforcement use of the technology. Um, recently, there's been uh, uh, two cities. There's been um, Jackson, Mississippi and Portland, Oregon, um, which have also passed bans in the latter uh, is the strictest in the country because it bans not just government use, but uh, private use as well with some exceptions. A number of states uh, have also introduced legislation that would ban police use of the technology, though none have passed. Um, and so in the 2019-2020 legislative session, there's been um, a few states uh, on the screen that have um, introduced legislation. Uh, these bans reflect sustained grassroots efforts to mobilize around the issue of face recognition and are the result of robust public dialogues. These efforts are ongoing in places like Detroit, where a coalition of activists and organizers are challenging the city's deployment of the technology. Um, and often attempts to ban um, or even regulate face recognition come up against various competing pressures or interests. So uh, influential police departments with a mandate to lower crime who see face recognition as a means to achieve this, or surveillance technology companies and their representatives uh, who have deep pockets to spend on lobbying. So next I wanna talk about a related but less strict legislative response, which is a moratorium, which pauses the use of face recognition technology. Uh, there are two types generally of, of moratoria, which I call time-bound moratoria, um, which temporarily stop face recognition use for a specific predetermined amount of time, uh, and directive moratoria, which temporarily stop face recognition use until the legislature or executive takes specific additional actions uh, or certain criteria are met. A time-bound moratorium is intended to give elected officials and the public time to catch up on the, the, the benefits and risks of face recognition and reconvene at a later time to decide on how to regulate it or whether to ban it um, and how they like would like it to be used or not used in their community. This raises the possibility uh, for public engagement, leaving open the possibility of either a permanent ban or regulation in the future. Um, these bills prompt discussion within legislative com committees the members of which are often unfamiliar with face recognition uh, about the technology, uh, including its potential harms. There is a risk, however, that if the legislature fails to act once a moratorium period is over, use of face recognition um, will just recommence with no safeguards in place, just as it had before. Uh, a directive moratorium, on the other hand, gives explicit instructions to the legislature or other government officials uh, to take additional steps um, after pausing use of the technology. Often this entails the creation of a task force, a working group or commission organized uh, by either the legislature or attorney general to study face recognition and recommend policy responses. It can also require that um, face recognition be paused until certain regulations are passed that meet a, a certain minimum threshold. Um, for example, a bill proposed in Massachusetts uh, would place a moratorium on government use of biometric surveillance, including face recognition, absent statutory authorization. Uh, it would also require this authorization to provide guidance on how the technology is used, data use standards, auditing requirements, 
and compliance mechanisms. Um, so basically, uh, any legislation that's passed would have to meet these standards. And at the federal level, uh, the Facial Recognition and Biometric Technology Moratorium Act of 2020 uh, would require express congressional approval for federal face recognition use. Um, and it would condition federal grant funding to states and local agencies on their adoption of similar moratoria. And then finally, the last general category of legislative responses I want to talk about uh, is more general regulation, which can vary significantly from bill to bill or law to law. Um, I like to think of regulatory bills ranging along two axes, one on how broad they are in terms of how many aspects of face recognition they cover and how deep they are in terms of how substantive the provisions actually are. Um, the two examples that I have here are a law in California that prohibits face recognition use with body-worn cameras and mobile devices, um, the police use with, with body-worn cameras and mobile devices, which is narrow in scope, but actually a rather substantive regulation. Um, and then I, con I contrast that with a law in Washington that was passed earlier, earlier this year that includes a range of regulations, um, which uh, you can see on the screen. Um, you know, of course, there's an element of subjectivity to what's considered substantive, and there's no real criteria to judge what's substantive or not, um, but I think it's helpful for comparing different bills or, or laws. Um, so let me go through some of the more common elements of regulatory bills uh, in somewhat of an increasingly substantive order. Um, so on a more basic level, legislation can set up a task force or working group, uh, which generally is, is meant to study face recognition and make policy recommendations, uh, which is more of a first step. It doesn't actually ensure that regulations will be put in place. It's more of just a stepping stone. Um, second, companies can be required to do things like open their software up to accuracy and bias testing or require uh, agencies conduct these testing um, or to provide notice and uh, notice access and removal rights to those whose faces have been captured. Um, so through so this category kind of touches on um, what Deb was talking about before about allowing third parties to conduct algorithmic audits. Um, third, an agency that's using face recognition can be required to provide provide details on how face recognition technology uh, is used, including how and how often to elected officials or to the public or, or to the attorney general's office in the form of transparency or accountability reports. Separately, agencies might be required to provide training to officers who will be using technology, uh, conduct human review of results, uh, or disclose to defendants that face recognition was used to identify them, which is kind of requirements for the officers who are implementing, uh, implementing this technology. Uh, next, legislation can um, uh, uh, place uh, restrictions on data use and access, such as prohibiting the sharing of face recognition data or search results with immigration enforcement authorities, um, or limiting federal access to state and local systems, prohibiting use on driver's licenses. Um, so that's uh, data and access restrictions. I think I skipped uh, mentioning another thing they can do is, is uh, apply explicit civil rights and liberties protections, which by enshrining that in, in, um, in the regulation uh, can, can be rather protective. Um, and then on the more substantive side, uh, legislation can institute targeted bans. Uh, so for example, they can prohibit face recognition use in real time or on drones, on body-worn cameras, um, or to limit 
uh, use only to serious crime investigations. So for example, with serious felonies. Um, and then finally, legislation can require law enforcement to obtain a court order backed by probable cause, um, or you know, in some cases, less strictly uh, reasonable suspicion in order to run face recognition searches. Regulation um, is trying to seek a balance between what the people making the regulation see as the intended benefits and harms of face recognition. Um, a number of tools available to lawmakers, like requiring companies to let their software be tested for bias, are certainly necessary, but not by any means sufficient preventing the harms associated with this technology. Uh, narrowly targeted bills, which may have a greater chance of passing due to well-resourced support from law enforcement uh, or company stakeholders, um, may not necessarily address all the actual risks. Um, and in fact, a number of companies are actually pretty active in lobbying for regulatory bills that may seem on their surface like they're, they're quite strict, um, but actually don't really change how police are using face recognition that much on the ground. Um, and this is a way that companies can um, continue developing their technology or, or continue developing it after a self-imposed moratorium in the case of some companies. Um, uh, and they can co-opt criticism about it uh, and preempt legislatures that might pass, try to pass stricter regulations or, or moratoria or bans. Um, and then on the other side, some advocates think that regulation uh, or anything short of a ban is, is still too permissive. Um, so this is just a, kind of a generalization of the legislative approaches we've seen to face recognition, though I've, I've left out non-face recognition specific legislation that might touch on this issue. Um, so for example, the Biometric Information Privacy Act in Illinois regulates private actor use of biometrics and uh, face recognition, but not necessarily government use, um, but that is a whole separate conversation. Um, so I'll just leave it at that. Um, and yeah, that's about it. Great. Thank you uh, so much, Jameson. That was a whirlwind tour, and I appreciate you cramming it all in, but gives a great look. We'll finish up with another sort of whirlwind tour. There are many, many legal issues, um, and our chat is already starting to pick up on some of them. Uh, Attorney Diaz will give us at least a peek at some of them, at some of the important ones. Attorney Diaz, I turn it over to you. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here with you and with this panel of uh, folks who I learn from daily and Professor Joe, I was you know reading her work when I was still in law school and as an attorney, and so it's humbling to be here right now. Um, I'm going to talk primarily about constitutional issues at a high level, um, and a lot of the work that we've done here in New York ends up focusing on transparency and accountability. So I will wrap up there with what we what the purpose of that, at least from my perspective, is, but. I think it's useful to sort of start um, perhaps with the framing around how I think about surveillance more broadly um, in terms of how it affects our program's namesake, which is liberty and national security. Um, I, I tend to organize it around two tendencies that humans have. The first tendency is that everybody wants to feel safe uh, in their homes, in their communities, as they move around the world. The second tendency is um, one that I kind of borrow from Octavia Butler in a book called Dawn, where she says that humans are inherently hierarchical. And the reality is that in that quest for safety, we're very often comfortable trampling on the rights of marginalized communities. And at least in this country, that marginalization most often expresses itself around racial lines. 
So if you look at our nation's history, whether it's Japanese internment during World War II, whether it was Muslim surveillance after 9-11, or what we're currently doing to families encaged at the border, this is something that happens generation after generation, and everyone is capable of doing the same thing. So our approach to the Constitution is that there are safeguards for rights and liberties that are meant to keep these tendencies of government in check. So we talked a little bit about facial recognition in particular, and we see a lot of those tendencies working together in that space. We saw that in the name of solving crimes, preventing terrorism, reuniting uh, lost children, we were going to deploy this technology, and either through an oversight or a lack of care, nobody bothered to check that it didn't work for the majority of people. And we didn't bother to stop, we'd be deployed it anyway, and it's actively used across the country. This is something that is replicated by a number of technologies that the police department uses. And part of the concern around that is that when you use a terrorism label or a gangster label, people sort of dull their sense of suspicion and they think, well, you know, this is only going to be used against the most uh, difficult hardened criminals and it's not going to affect me and I have nothing to hide, so I have nothing to worry about. And I think that this summer, a lot of folks have really had to confront the full array of surveillance tools when they decided that we were going to take to the streets, when a multiracial coalition took to the streets and protested the ongoing murders of Black people at the hands of police. What we really saw was a huge uptick in people Googling, how do I protect my privacy at a protest? Um, all your friends are downloading Signal suddenly. Um, you're getting tips to not post pictures of protesters' faces because the cops can see it. You really see really what it means to feel like you're being watched and how you might potentially, even if you thought that your ideas were normal or maybe not that radical, you become more afraid when you realize that the government analyzing the same thing that you're doing might come to a different conclusion as you. And so I think that oftentimes we see things that are, you know, folks like me can sound hypothetical or even hyperbolic. I think that this summer really kind of made it clear just how fragile this, this, this divide is and how, you know, with some of these uh, curfew orders, the difference between a lawful assembly and an unlawful one is just the top of the hour. And so, and we also saw the way in which the government can sort of blur the line between law enforcement and protest suppression. So when we talk about the impact of tools on our fundamental freedom of speech issues and the right to have privacy, we've really had to confront them in a real way. At the same time, as we go into autumn, I think some of that momentum is, is dying down a little bit, but the surveillance hasn't died down. The surveillance is largely concentrated in communities of color, where their online spaces and their offline spaces are being monitored by a number of different tools, many of which don't work, many of which require the police to make determinations based on a social media posts that they don't really understand. Um, and these also sort of bring up a separate issue that I think we oftentimes don't give its own of slot to, which is an equal protection one. The reality is that just the disparate treatment of being surveilled is a separate harm. The, the reality of having your community be treated as inherently suspicious brands you with a badge of inferiority that really removes your ability to function as an equal citizen under the law. 
So I wanted to make sure that we talked about that separately. Um, you know, part of, of the reason that these arsenal, you know, I'm going to repeat a little bit of, of what's been said, is that these tools have been acquired and deployed in secret without any real um, input from the public, from city council, from elected officials. And that is, you know, it's to a certain extent understandable. Police want to feel like they're a step ahead of people and they don't want to have to fully disclose everything because they, they worry that, that people will be able to avoid it. But what we're talking about is a fundamental change in what the public space looks like. You are functionally unable to walk down the street without subjecting yourself to some level of government surveillance. And unfortunately, we've opened up a whole slew of ways in which we can monitor who people are, where they go, who they talk to. And if you're at a protest, traditionally, you don't walk around with your resume around your neck, but now you have where you went to school, where you work, who your friends are, all of this information is available to the government. And at the same time, our notions of what the public space is remain very much stuck in a pre-digital understanding of them. So part of why we need transparency and accountability is to sort of restore that balance a little bit and to have the public have a real understanding of what's being used. And that whole, the, the, the um, scale that Jameson presented is a very good one. We have to have all of them, but at the, at the end of the day, we can't sort of talk about what we don't know is being used. So transparency and accountability is sort of the first step in trying to restore a power imbalance. I'll stop there. Fantastic comments. Um, this is great. And we've got a great set of questions and 14 minutes to solve all of them. So we'll jump right in. Let me um, queue up several from... Um, the audience, which I think in part have to do with um, how do we evaluate some of these um, tools and also then a lot of questions about, all right, so what's the next step forward? So let me just start with the evaluation um, question. There are a couple and, and I had one. Uh, maybe anyone could take this. Um, the comment uh, said, asked that the NIST National Institute of Standards recent demographic testing showed that some of the face recognition algorithms they had tested had essentially no demographic disparities. The specific question is about that study. Are the, is the NIST right about that or is their testing some way inadequate? I'd like to add onto that the bigger question, which is whose audit do we trust? Whose evaluation do we trust? So who's like evaluating the evaluators? I was gonna say, um, uh, I actually just in my slides, I noted NIST's um, result for their part three, where they say that um, performance for um, Asian and African Americans are a hundred times worse. So I'm not sure if you're thinking of NIST, but I agree. Like the um, the um, the question of sort of whose evaluation do we trust is a very important one. Where um, uh, prior to gender shades, I think. Um, it was sort of understood for a while that facial recognition was a solved problem, which is like in the computer vision space, it wasn't even noted as like an like a, a incredibly interesting domain, mostly because on the data sets that we had available, um, performance was uh, looking very good. Uh, NIST was actually, you know, they, they would report numbers at like 99% accuracy on their, on their evaluation sets. And then it wasn't until sort of the question of, demographic performance came about where, uh, well, who does, who's actually represented in that test set um, and who is missing and wh who does that, um, 
what is that that accuracy number of 99%? Who does that actually apply to and who does that not apply to? In the case of uh, darker skinned women, it was much lower than night. It was less than 70% accuracy. So I think that um, in terms of who we should trust, that's a very loaded question. I'm not sure it's a question of who, but what methodology they're using and, and who they are prioritizing as an institution doing the evaluations. Um, so uh, groups like ACLU, the Algorithmic Justice League, like I mentioned, um, and, you know, even some companies are beginning to sort of get on board with this idea of actually actively identifying uh, demographic communities that are at risk of, um, you know, being misidentified and having that escalate and making sure to incorporate that as part of their evaluation process, which was not part of the evaluation process before. Um, I think it was just mentioned, you know, um, to, uh, to for, for the, the most uh, surprising thing about our results was not necessarily just the disparities, but the fact that these are deployed systems. You know, someone had built the system, released it. Uh, at the time that we had evaluated Amazon, they were pitching it to ICE. They, they really thought it worked. Um, uh, and they hadn't really assessed the performance on uh, the communities that were most vulnerable to abuse. So I think that like, yeah, that, that sort of pulls into question the whole evaluation process of machine learning and how valid that is today. So I think more important than the question of, whose evaluation should we trust or whose audit should we trust? There's a bigger question of how are we actually evaluating things? What are these accuracy measures really representing? Um, especially in standards development, it's a very political process, which uh, calculations uh, determine performance. Um, so really questioning that methodology um, and something I would like to see is having some of that um, reflected in the regulatory proposals, not just you need to perform at X percent accuracy, but you need to evaluate your systems and report performance in this particular way, following this methodology. Um, that's what I would like to see. Yeah, so in response to the NIST question though, uh, NIST did find that there was disparate performance. Thank you for the clarification. Uh, yeah. Professor Joe, maybe I can ask you to address this next question though, anyone should jump in. Um, and again, kind of teaming two questions together. So Professor McGovern asked, is it realistic to limit or regulate government use of technology without doing the same for the private sector use? As with geolocation records, won't law enforcement simply search stored private sector data to achieve somewhat similar results? And somebody asked, What's the analog here to other sorts of previously very personal and potentially privacy uh, violating information? Um, how did we handle that? You know, um, what did we learn from that? You, you started by saying that this is one of a suite of technologies and broadened our discussion. I wonder if you can talk to those regulatory and sort of intervention concerns. Sure. I mean, I think that's very quickly, it's a great point. And, you know, we really can't begin to address the problem socially as insofar as it affects our individual liberties and privacy in a non-legal sense, um, if we're only going to focus on the police. Um, why? Because those harms are addressed uh, uh, society-wide. And of course, the police can directly acquire this information through their own facial recognition technology, or they can also decide to simply purchase information uh, as customers uh, in the private marketplace. So that's right, just only looking at government regulation is only gonna solve or address part of the problem. As for surveillance technologies, there are many to um, uh, look at for analogs. There's one going on right now. You know, you can look at the long history of thinking about something like DNA evidence where, you know, uh, not too long ago, historically in the 1980s, we thought, well, DNA would only be used in the most serious of crimes. And of course, it would never have wide application. And of course, here we are in 2020, 
where people have voluntarily populated these giant genetic databases. Uh, uh, police have decided that these are wonderful repositories of information for investigation. We've gone into a kind of adopt the technology, figure out the problems later. Whoops, it turns out there are many more harms than we realize. What are we going to do now? Um, and we see that's the pattern that is repeated over and over again whether we're talking about facial recognition or we're going to talk about license plate recognition, any kind of increasing technology like this has a kind of sad pattern of, of um, historical repeat. And I think there has to be some lessons learned here. Um, you know, you raised the question of DNA and I wanted to ask the panel this question. In the criminal defense world, DNA evidence is often seen as um, a really valuable tool to um, fight against uh, a government uh, prosecution. And I'm wondering if any of you could talk about the sort of next best alternative, which at present is some amalgamation of eyewitness memory, which is fallible of police and their own thinking of, yeah, I saw you there, I know that you mean. Um, what is uh, the thinking in the field on maybe this isn't uh, perfect and maybe it has problems, but is it better than the also problematic current state of affairs of identifying individuals? Is it the pervasiveness? Is it lack of accuracy? Um, is it, are there some additional constitutional issues that are particularly challenging here? I wonder if any of you wanted to speak, speak to that. I can jump in quickly. Um, I think that one of the issues, and, and you know, there are researchers that are looking into this right now, but the way in which computer systems can sort of reinforce existing biases that police officers already have. So there is an example over the summer where a black family was pulled over and held face down on the ground and arrested because their license plate reader saw that their SUV was actually a stolen motorcycle from a different state. Um, so a simple follow-up check on the device would have revealed that an SUV is not a motorcycle and that a whole family couldn't have fit into a motorcycle. But once you had the machine telling you this is somebody who's out of state and you see a black family, your brain kind of turns into autopilot and people just sort of were subjected to this really awful and traumatic experience, including to young children. So I don't necessarily think that just because we have a tool that maybe little bit less uh, fallible that we don't have it and we're not going to be deploying it within a system that has a lot of historic biases in place um, and I think quickly I would just also add that a lot of the conversation focuses on accuracy and the hope that once we're able to sort of fix the accuracy problem things will go away um, one of the common issues that we continually have is abuse by police departments so um, at Georgetown, Claire Garvey had a really great story about the NYPD running um, surveillance footage of someone who stole a six-pack of beer from a CVS, but the system didn't recognize the footage because it was too grainy. And so the officer thought, oh, that, that person kind of looks like Woody Harrelson. So they went to Google, brought up a picture of Woody Harrelson and ran that through facial recognition. These kinds of abuses, um, whether it's you know celebrity probe photo, uh, running a sketch through facial recognition, creating these sort of Photoshop art projects through it. All of these other abuses need to be controlled and that's not gonna go away just because the technology is more accurate. Thank you for that. We have um, so many more good questions, uh, but in the interest of time, I just wanna ask one last one and let each of you weigh in on it. And it's really looking ahead and maybe Jameson, you can speak to this first. The question is just what's the best way forward? for law enforcement, tech companies, research communities, legislators, advocates, you all have raised 
a lot of really challenging questions. It seems there's also consensus that the technology development isn't stopping. It's only becoming more prominent. Um, so given the realities, what do we do? Uh, and you each have about a minute to give us your answer for the, the best thing to do. Um, Jameson, let's start with you, and then we'll go to, uh, just see as I see on the screen, Elizabeth, Deborah, and Angel to, to finish. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge question. Um, I just want to uh, uh, piggyback off what, what Angel was saying, actually just said. Um, face recognition, we also have to realize that it gives law enforcement power that they have not had before. So it changes, it changes the power dynamic. Um, it allows them to identify and track many people in secret from a distance over long periods of time. Um, and it just breaches our expectations of what they can do. So it's not only a, a matter of, of accuracy, but also how it shifts the, the power dynamic. Um, so with that, I would say that um, you know, even with with increasing accuracy, um, communities are right to be skeptical of this technology. And I think that um, it's not necessarily going to be a one size fits all uh, decision about how to use this technology or, or whether to use this technology. Some communities will will, will say that this is not a, something that we want police to use, whether it's because of accuracy issues or because of um, our relationship with with police officers historically, um, and then and then in other places, some might say, okay, we want to use it, but it's there's a very very limited uh, scope of how it can be used, um, and, and so ultimately, I think it's it's up to um, communities to have this conversation after public uh, informed dialogue about it, which we have not had um, until relatively recently. Um, so, yeah. thank you, uh, Elizabeth. Uh, yeah, I have a, a slightly different way to put the closing comment I have, and that is, if you're here, it's at the very least because you're interested in this topic, or or many of you are actually deeply concerned about this topic. And I hope that you walk away from this thinking that, well, what can I do? The one thing you can do is, your project is one of translation. Think of a community that you can translate these problems to, whether that's your local community that you live in, uh, a police department that you want to speak to, or, you know, this is a legal community, many of you. Um, how are you going to explain this to a judge? There are so many judges who are only beginning to grapple with many of these technological issues. So that's the one nugget, in the, which is to you know translate some aspect of today's webinar into like an elevator pitch so you can talk about it with people who uh, need to know about it in, in a much deeper way. Thank you. Deborah? Um, yeah, I resonate completely with everything everyone said. Um, to reference Jameson's point around accuracy, you know, with our results on uh, the bias issues with facial recognition technology whenever we're actually discussing with um, advocates or community members, um, their response is never, oh my gosh, this is inaccurate for our community and thus we want it to get better. Their response is usually like, finally, we have evidence that this wasn't built for us. So, um, you know, we were working with tenants um, uh, where their landlord was sort of threatening to use facial recognition and deploy it in their environment and their interpretation of our um, research and how they kind of used it in their letter to the landlord and to different um, policymakers was to say that, you know, this is evidence for us that they deployed this technology without even thinking about our well-being. So clearly this whole enterprise is not um, established for our benefit. And it was such a remarkable interpretation of what our work meant um, to community members and to people that already know that um, the deployment of these technologies, especially by institutions that you know are really beginning to be challenged and questioned right now, such as the police, um, um, makes it so that the communities really um, 
need to have an avenue to appeal, an avenue to participate in the decision making around whether or not this enters my community or my neighborhood. Um, something else I wanted to just flag very quickly is that public-private partnership that on Helm kind of mentioned, where um, you know we have a situation with facial recognition, unlike with a fingerprint, unlike with DNA, where um, I. Um, I would never upload my fingerprint um, online, but I have my face everywhere online and anyone can take that information and do anything that they want with it. As I'm walking down the street, someone can take a picture of my face from 50 meters away and um, it, you know, process that image uh, without me knowing that that has even happened. So I think with facial recognition, there's um, a, a passive nature of the technology that makes it a lot more uh, challenging and a lot easier for me to be in my house or in, you know, what I assume to be private property and none, nonetheless monitored. So I think that dynamic of it makes it especially dangerous and challenging and needs to be explicitly discussed about in regulation. Thank you. Angel. All right. How to have something to add. Um, well, I, I think that, I think to combine what's been said before, what we really need to have is a fundamental change in what we think is inevitable and what we think about what um, what we can't slow down. Um, technology certainly will continue to evolve, but it doesn't have to continue the way that it is. And I think that Deb's example of, of the tenants of Atlantic Towers standing up and saying, oh, it's very easy to say, well, this is a powerful landlord who's just trying to keep his building safe. And if he wants to install this technology within his right, it, it didn't work out that way. Um, there is power in people speaking up and to say that actually, I don't wanna to have to subject myself to this kind of technology. And part of what, you know, Professor Joe's point about translating to everybody, by the time it gets to a court, we need to have had a massive shift in public opinion so that it seems inevitable that the only conclusion that we have to have in a court is that we have to update the way that we think about everything from public space, the third party doctrine, et cetera. But that requires everybody speaking up and collectively shifting how we think about the role of technology in our society. Great closing words. Uh, thank you to everyone, to all of our panelists. Thank you to Olivia Kurtz, who is behind the scenes and ran the show today. Thanks to the University of Minnesota for sponsoring this event. The last thing I will say is that if you're a University of Minnesota law school student, I know there are many of you on the list, something you can do is take classes, take privacy law, take advanced constitutional law, take policing, take law and AI, take race and the law, um, and become the next leaders in these fields. Thank you to everyone. If you need TLE credit, look for your email next week. Again, if you liked what you heard, share this. You'll get the email with the links next week. And with that, I think we'll say thank you and good afternoon. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.